So we are doing a series on our Bring and Share Sundays uh, that has to do with a theme for this year, that what's on our hearts for us as a congregation this year. And if you remember way back in December, if you guys were with us way back in December, we talked about in the fourth Sunday of December this, this reality that we in 2015 had a very successful year if you measure success by numbers and budgets and baptisms and that sort of thing. We had a successful year. And we praise God for that. We praise God for His increase because it's definitely a work of God to bring the increase. But one of the things that God was really stirring my heart about was, is that really the way we want to measure growth? Is that what God would call us as a, to use as a measuring rod? And the thing that the Lord kept bringing back to my heart was that the, the only way I'm going to know that I'm growing, the only way you're going to know that you're growing is not if we have as a congregation, bigger budgets or a better building or whatever, we're going to know we're growing because we grow in love. We grow in love. And we talked about on that first Sunday in December, we, or that fourth Sunday in December, we talked about the reality of growing in God's love for us, understanding His perfect, committed, eternal love that He shared with us, love that He's always had with Him and His Son, Jesus Christ, through the, through the Spirit. He's shared with us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we can know that love, not just intellectually, but experientially. And we talked about how He wants us to grow in love for Him and how loving God supremely is what enables us to love others even when they treat us badly. And we talked about what it means to to grow in love for one another, and there's a need for us to be committed to each other. There's a a relational aspect to that. It's got to be bigger than just being nice at church. It's got to be about us willing to invest our lives in one another. And we talked about, um, we're talking about today this need for us to grow in our love for God's Word. And it's interesting because as I talk about this, I'm aware of some of the thoughts you may have had. I know that many believers have had. I know I've had these thoughts of, okay, isn't there a danger? In fact, we've talked about this danger for us as a church. Isn't there a danger that if we take the Bible so seriously, if we focus so much on Scripture that we're going to actually be worshiping Father, Son, and Holy Bible and not worshiping Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That we're going to treat the Bible as an idol. We're going to bow down to it. When we're really supposed to just love the God of the Word, not the Word of God. And we can think that way. We can think, okay, is that the possibility? Can that happen? I've had those thoughts. And if I'm honest, there's been times in my life where Really, what I've wanted to do is know what God says just so I can know what God says. Or I want to know what the Scripture says so I can kind of show what kind of knowledge I have. And and I have to testify, I can say along with the psalmist, he says here in Psalm 119 how, Lord, your word make me wiser than my teachers, makes me wiser than the ancients. And, And I have to say, I have in my pride patted myself on the back having conversations with people who are far more educated than me and be able to keep up with them only because I know this book. And it was the, the, the issue there, though, wasn't with this book. The issue there was with my pride. So obviously there's a hindrance that we can have because we're prideful, sinful people that we can take a great thing like God's Word and we can use it to build us up or to, to puff us up, I should say, and not to want us to learn to love more. And obviously we're not talking about that. But we can't deny that what the Scripture shows as a fact is that the longest chapter in Scripture, Psalm 119, the longest 
psalm or song of praise in all the psalms is Psalm 119. And it is definitely a love poem about the Word of God. There's no doubt about it. Let me give you just some examples from from this, this psalm. He says, the psalmist writes, I will delight myself in your commandments, which I love. My hands also I will lift up, with my hands I will also lift, lift up your commandments, which I love, and will meditate on your statutes. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. I love your commandments more than gold. Yes, more than fine gold. Your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. My soul keeps your testimony, testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I mean, if you read this psalm, and I'd really encourage you, I hope that you guys do this, I hope that you go home today, and sometime this week, you take the time to read all 176 verses. won't take you that long, probably 15 minutes. But if you read this psalm, you'll see that the, the psalmist is almost gushing over the Word of God. He talks about panting for the Word of God. And you get this picture of somebody who's obsessed with what's written here. But what you'll also notice is that every time he talks about the Word of God, whatever he uses, whatever the, of the uh, eight to ten different um, phrases he used to talk about the Word of God, whether it's word or testimonies or law or precepts or statutes or whatever, that whenever he uses those words, he always includes the pronoun your. So that when he's Talking about the Word of God, he's not talking about an object that he separates from the God of the Word. He's not saying, oh, I just love this book. I just love the information I get from this book. But he loves the Word of God because it is indeed Word from God. He loves God. And because he loves God and because he recognizes from God's Word that God wants him to relate to him through his Word, he loves God the Word of God. Now, what I want to do is really kind of talk about, well, how do, we, how do we get to that place? How do we grow to a place where we can say, man, I love God's Word? And, and I have to say, this is, in one sense, uh, uh, an easy study for me to teach. It's easy in the sense of, I do love God's Word. I am so thankful that I I got saved into and discipled in a movement of churches that highly values Scripture. I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful that my youth pastor didn't just say, let's play this game, but said, let's look at this text. Let's follow Jesus the way he says here we're supposed to follow him. I'm so thankful for that. But what I've noticed is it's difficult for a lot of people to feel that way because I think we, we sometimes we approach God's Word the wrong way. We're looking at for it to be a self-health book, you know? Okay, okay I'm going to read this and it's going to say, okay, all he needs to do this today. Well, it doesn't say my name at all. All he's not mentioned once in the Bible. <laughs> so how does that work? Or, or we look at it and we think, okay, uh, I, I wanted to say God loves Karen. Wait, but my name Karen, Karen's not in there anywhere. And we're kind of treating this book as if it was meant to be written to us. And it wasn't meant to be written to us, it's written for us. So we have to understand how it is that we approach this book so that we can develop, so we can grow in this love for it. And so I'm going to give you three basic things from this small section 
from verse 153 to 160. Three things. How can we learn to benefit from God's Word? Here's the first thing. We need to remember God's intervention in our affliction. We need to remember God's intervention in our affliction. It says in 153, the psalmist writes, Consider my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Now, one of the amazing things about Psalm 119, it wasn't as if the psalmist sat down and wrote all 176 verses at the same time. Now, we don't know who wrote it. A lot of the old commentators think that David wrote it. Some of the newer, more modern commentators think that it could have been someone during the time when Nehemiah and Ezra were kind of rebuilding Jerusalem, and they're rediscovering God's law, and so they're beginning to think about it, and so maybe over that period of time. But what seems really obvious here from the way the, the thoughts do not actually flow is that maybe each section was written at a different time. It's written, if, if you notice, I know that my, my New King James Bible has the, the uh, Hebrew word for that particular letter in front of each section. So in front of uh, verse 153, it says resh, which is one of 200, or I'm sorry, one of, 200, one of 22 uh, of the Hebrew letters in the alphabet. And the psalm is written that way. It's written sort of in alphabetical order according to the Hebrew, one section at a time. And so you get this kind of picture that the psalmist, whoever the psalmist was, he wrote this over a long period of time in his experience with God's Word. So this is someone who's gone through different circumstances, he's lived through different time periods, he's had highs, he's had lows, and all throughout that, he's been spending time with God in his Word. What's interesting about this as well is that, or it's important about that, is the fact that this is not someone who's some theologian studying these ideas in an ivory tower somewhere. It's funny how many people think that that's what I do all day. Uh, John, you got that cushy job, just drink coffee and read all day. That's all you do. I do drink coffee and read a lot, that's true. But that's not all I do. And it's not like I'm just sitting there kind of going, this is interesting, what an idea. And that's not how the psalm was written. This guy, whoever he was, had gone through difficult times. He was in difficult seasons of his life and in good seasons of his life. And no matter what, he went back to God's Word. It's interesting that he, he writes, Consider my affliction, Lord, and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. And, and this is not so much of him saying, God, look, I haven't forgot your law. You owe me one. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. But this is more about him saying, Listen, I've seen what your law says about you. I know the kind of God you are. And so you've helped the afflicted in the past, help the afflicted now. This is what he wants us to recognize. God wants us to be in his word, even when we're going through affliction, maybe especially when we're going through difficulties and affliction, because it's as we see how God's dealt with others, how faithful he's been to his people in the past, that we recognize, yes, I can trust God in this affliction. I can trust God in this difficulty. Again, look at what Psalm 119 says. I'll read several verses to you. This is my comfort, the psalmist says, in my affliction, for your word has given me life. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, he says, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Do you see how this progresses? 
how the psalmist, as he's going through all kinds of difficulties, he, he's, he, he, he kind of begins by saying, Lord, I'm feeling better in the midst of my affliction as I meditate on your word, as I, as I stay in your word. But eventually he gets to a place where he goes, you know, Lord, it's good that you're the one who allows my affliction. That's what he means by this. The psalmist is not necessarily saying, God, you've caused all my pain. He's saying, Lord, you're sovereign, you're all-powerful, and you're still all good, and you've allowed all my pain. And God, I have to believe that in the midst of my affliction, you're working something good out. This is what we learn from God's Word. This is why we need to be in God's Word, because when we're in those difficult times and we think, Lord, what are you doing? I don't get it. This is really tough, especially as you, you, you're a new believer and you're first going through difficult times. That's when you need to go deeper into God's Word and say, okay, how does this work? Am I the only person suffering? And you'll read the book and go, nope, <laughs> not the only one. And God's always a faithful to those of His that are afflicted. Now, it's interesting because as you read this, what, do you, what happens? Look at what he does, verse 154. He says, I plead my cause, he prays, and redeem me. Notice, revive me according to your word. That word revives used three times in this little section, many more times than that in the rest of the psalm. Revive. Sometimes it's just translated, you've given me life, but it, it holds this idea that, God, you've produced vitality in me, and you sustain vitality in me. And so when he says, revive me, he's saying, Lord, I'm feeling a bit weak. I need to be revitalized. I need you to kind of fill me back up. I need you to strengthen me. And I love this because he, he says, look, I'm considering, as he's, as he's meditating on God's word, he's saying, I'm, I want you to consider what I'm going through, Lord. I know that you help the afflicted, so I'm asking you to revive me according to your word. I'm asking you to do for me what you've done for all these other people. Because this is what we need to understand, that God doesn't look at the people that we see in the Scriptures. If you, if you go to Hebrews chapter 11 and you read this list of faithful people that the author of Hebrews lists, you read those people and those people aren't there in that list to say, wow, too bad you're not on this list. <laughs> that list of people is there to encourage you, listen, this is the list you belong to if you believe. I mean, in fact, it's interesting, the kind of people that were included in that list. He lists Samson in Hebrews 11. If you read the story of, of Samson, you know what you find out about Samson in the book of Judges? The guy was a failure. Oh, yeah, he was really strong, and he had all this power, but the very things that he was not meant to do, he fell into those very things. He ends up basically being in a place where the source of his power, his long hair, which is representative of his commitment to God, was cut off. His eyes were plucked out, and he's pushing a, uh, this, this grinding wheel, grinding wheat for the enemy of God's people. That's how the story ends until just the last couple of verses when he cries out humility and says, God, please, let me have vengeance on your enemies. And his hair's growing back, and so he's able to see a bunch of God's enemies destroyed at the same time. But if you read his life, he says it's a story of failure. It's a story of, of wasted potential. And yet what happens? He's included in this hall of fame of faith in Hebrews 11. Why? Because the, the, the reality is God gives us these examples so that we know, listen, no matter how much we've failed, no matter how difficult life is, God remains faithful. 
We need to remember this. We forget all the time. We feel like, no, God couldn't be faithful because there's another problem in my life. We have to go back to God's Word and read what it says and go, no, God is faithful to His people in the midst of their afflictions, even if they're self-inflicted afflictions. He's faithful. And when we see He's faithful, what happens? We ask. We ask Him to do the same thing in our situation. One of the things that's great about Psalm 119, and I'd really encourage you to do this if you take the time to read it, notice how many prayers there are in Psalm 119. And this is a really important aspect of us learning to grow in God's Word. It's not just saying, okay, God, we're going to go into your Word, we're going to remember uh, that you always intervene when we're afflicted or having difficulties, but God, we want to pray your Word back to you. I mean, it's funny because I think we, we make this mistake and we can get into this kind of religious habit of, okay, I've read two chapters, now I'm going to pray for 15 minutes. Tick! Look at me, I'm a spiritual Christian. As opposed to saying, God, here I am wanting to be with you. I'm opening your words and I'm going to have a conversation with you, my God. I'm going to confess when you expose my sin. I'm going to praise when you remind me of your character. I'm going to ask when you show me your promise. I'm going to obey when you give me a command. Praying these things back to God. Uh, so many times when I'm reading the, 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 the Scriptures, my, my time I usually do it in the morning, and when I'm reading the Scriptures, so many times I find myself going, God, do this. Do this for me today. Work this out for me today. How does this work, Lord? And I'm conversing with Him about these things. The psalmist did that. So it's not just kind of going through the motions and remembering a fact from Scripture. It's praying it back and saying, God, you revive me according to your word. Do for me what you've done for these people. So that's the first thing. We remember God's intervention in our affliction. Here's the second thing. We recognize God's standards for right and wrong. This is really important. One of the reasons why we as human beings, by nature, sort of push away the understanding of God. One of the things that kind of repels us about this idea that there's an all-powerful God is that we don't like the idea that He sets the standard of what's right and wrong, that He says what's right and wrong. We don't like that idea. We like the idea that we set our own standard for right and wrong. But actually, we don't realize that when we think that way, we are actually hindering ourselves from understanding what it means to be able to recognize right and wrong, to be able to do right or wrong. Look, look what he says in 155, verse 155. He says, salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Now, he's not trying to paint a picture of God saying, I don't want nothing to do with you. He's painting a picture of someone who's saying, I don't want anything to do with God. And God's saying, well, you don't have because you don't seek. He's painted a picture of someone who says, I don't want anything to do with God. I don't, I don't care about His deliverance, His salvation. And so, the psalmist says, therefore it's far from Him. But look what he says in verse 156. But great are your tender mercies, O Lord. Therefore, he prays, revive me according to your judgments. Interesting. The word there, the phrase there, tender mercies, it's one word in the Hebrew and it's this word that means compassions, and specifically is, is talking about the compassions that a mother would have with a baby in their womb. And there's not a mother alive 
that if, if they don't realize that that is a baby in their room, they wouldn't think, I want to protect this baby. If they realize that, if they, any mother who recognizes that that in their womb is not a that or an it, but a person, anyone who recognizes that would protect that baby. That's not a political statement, it's a fact. Anyone would do that. And the idea here is that, and, and, well, the idea with that is too, is that with that baby, that baby actually has done nothing for its mother except take, right? We can romanticize how beautiful it is and it is a beautiful thing, but the fact is that baby just takes from its mother. That's all it does. And yet the mother cares more about that baby than her own life. And so when the Scripture says, listen, Great are your tender mercies. When the psalmist says, Great are your tender mercies, he's saying, God, this is how you have, you have. You have this gracious compassion towards me. I've done nothing from, for you. I only take from you, and yet you're committed to me this way. Now, this is what happens as we recognize God's standards of right and wrong. One of the first things that happens is we recognize by God's standard, we're all wrong. That we are that way. We take from God, we rarely give anything back. And even when we do give something back, we're only given to Him what He's first given to us. And so we recognize that any kind of love that He has for us, compassion or commitment He has for us, is an act of grace. We don't deserve it. This is what the, the law does. In fact, the psalmist kind of uh, alludes to this late, uh, in, in, um, in the psalm itself. In verse 8, he says, I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. And you have a sense that he's, he's kind of looking at God's law. In fact, whoever wrote this probably pretty much only had the first five books of the Bible as the Bible. And he's looking at God's law, and he's thinking, oh, man, I fall short of this. God, I, I want to keep your word. I see it's good, but please, I fall so short of this. In fact, Paul says in the book of Romans, this is exactly what God's word's meant to do, what God's law specifically is meant to do. Listen, he says, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. I mean, isn't that true? Would you have ever guessed it was wrong to think in your heart that you wish you had something somebody else had? I mean, do you even realize that's wrong now? <laughs> we wouldn't even think that being wrong until God says, look, this is bad. It's not good for you. It's bad. I don't want you to do it. No coveting. He says, listen, the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. Why? How can God's law that's, that's good bring death? It brings death because the law doesn't help us to change. It just shows us where we need to change. Therefore, listen, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. And he ends the chapter by saying this, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, listen, when we're talking about the Scripture uh, showing us standards of right and wrong, this is how we stay humble. This is how we stay dependent upon what Christ has done for us. We see what God's standards are and we recognize, man, I fall short. I'm hesitant to say this now because it'll be on tape. But I'm going to say it. I was 30 minutes late to church today. 30 minutes, man. I came in right when they were ending worship. Now, I could give you lots of excuses of why I was late and make it sound like I was late because I am ever so diligent trying to do too many things, but the truth was it was bad planning on my part, and I was late. It's embarrassing. 
I know it's a, it's a minor thing. Trust me, there's much worse things that I've been involved in. But it's embarrassing still. And, and I could say, well, well, it's no big deal, you know. I'm late, so what? Who cares? Or I can look at this and say, Lord, man, 25 years I've been a pastor and I still can't get to places on time. I mean, it's, it's inconsiderate and it's unprofessional and it's bad. 25 years, I still can't get there on time. I've been employed since I was 11 years old and I'm still late for everything all the time. I'm surprised I never got fired for being late. Now I'm saying this, guys, because we, we, we live in a day and age where the last thing we want anybody to ever feel is guilt. Oh, don't let people feel guilty. It's bad. Well, there's certain things that are politically correct to feel guilty about, for, but for the most part, you don't want to ever make anybody feel guilty. Preachers specifically aren't supposed to make anybody feel guilty. That's bad. But here's the truth. The truth is God gives us His law. He shows us His standards of right and wrong so we recognize, God, what I need is not a better performance. Is more, what I need is more grace. I need your great compassion for me because I fall so radically short. And the more we recognize it and the more we realize we have it, the more we grow in love with Him. It's interesting, too, because he goes on to say in, in, uh, in verse 157, many are my persecutors and my enemies, yet I do not turn from your testimonies. I see the treacherous, that's speaking of the word treacherous, is speaking of those who uh, kind of sneak in and kind of take advantage of the vulnerable, so that they do something undercover when no one's looking. I see the treacherous and I am disgusted because they do not keep your word. Now see, here's the the thing. As we stay in God's word, as we learn to recognize God's standards of right and wrong, you know what that allows us to do? It allows us to do the right thing when we're in the wrong environment. I mean, let's be honest. Sometimes it's really difficult to do the right thing. Sometimes it's even difficult to know what the right thing is to do. But it's hard to do the right thing sometimes. We know that God holds us to certain standards, and so in our workplace, we want to make sure that we're doing what we're paid to do. But then people sometimes take advantage of us, or other people tend to lie or kind of, kind of trick here or trick there, and we think, well, they get away with it. Why don't I get away with it? We go back to God's Word, and we see that God says He hates an unjust balance. He wants to make sure that we are being right with these things. We go, okay, Lord, this is a tough environment, but I need to do what's right. And I'll tell you, it's difficult, isn't it? Because it takes us believing that the standards that we're seeing are actually God's standards to do that, because if not, what happens? You know what it's like, right? You think, I'm going to do the right thing. You're not trying to make a big deal about it. You're quiet about it, but you do the right thing, and everyone's like, knock it off, man. You're making us look bad. It's hard, isn't it? And it's all that you can do not to either be smug or frustrated, and you're like, Lord, help me. You see, we need God to show us what is right and what is wrong. So one, that we know we need His grace, but also so that we can actually do what He wants us to do. We actually be those that, that, that stand for something. Again, Psalm, the psalmist says in verse 7 and verse 13, he says, I will praise you with uprightness of heart. Notice he says, when I learn your righteous judgments. He's not assuming he knows. He says, I got to learn. I got a lot to learn, he says. With my lips, he says, I have declared all of your 
all the judgments of your mouth. This is not about being us thinking we're right, we're holier than thou. Not at all. It's about saying, well, this is what God says. This is the standard that God holds us to. And we, hey, we fall short as well, but we're still seen as God's standard, and so we're still going to shoot for walking by that standard. One of the things that I find myself wrestling uh, with this in, uh, and I, I mean this uh, specifically um, as, a, as a pastor trying to help people, is in the standard of sexual ethics. Uh, so, you know, dealing with a lot of university students, but also uh, not just university students, people, other people as well, grown uh, men and women. And this, there's so many opportunities today for us to lower the, what God's standard is when it comes to these things. I mean, it's just there's so much pressure for us to say that this behavior is okay and that behavior is okay. It's, it's a difficult thing. It's really tough. You know, one of the things that uh, one of the students was saying to me was that we have a reputation at Servants Church, I have a reputation as a pastor, of being very conservative, almost maybe a bit prudish. Because of things like, you know, well, just because of some of the standards that we've had. And it's tough, I'll be honest. Sometimes when that happens, I feel a little bit, maybe I need to lower the standard a little bit. Maybe I don't need to be so harsh. And it's not, about a, it's not a matter of saying, oh, that person's out of the church because they haven't done what we want them to do. It's never like that. It's never been that way. It's always been the situation of, you know, if this is what God actually says, should we not keep that standard? Even, even if we've fallen before, even if we've fallen short of that, that standard today, shouldn't we seek to keep that standard tomorrow? You know, the, the Bible says things like it's good for a man not even to touch a woman. That's what it says. And so one of my convictions is, and what I try to advise people are, and it's like, okay, you're dating. You know what? Keep it to a very minimum of touch. If you wouldn't touch your sister that way, don't touch your girlfriend that way. Well, come on. I, I'm not going to French kiss my sister. Well, then maybe you shouldn't French kiss your girlfriend. Maybe she wait until she... Marry someone else. Well, so strict, John. Well, let me say this. I'm not like peering into your bedrooms to see if you're kind of keeping that standard. But let me also say, why is it bad? If that seems to be what God's saying, and we're talking about God, you know, the, the Scripture is written, especially the New Testament, is written to a very promiscuous society. It's not as if we're, we've, we've only learned how to have sex outside of marriage in this century. It's not as if homosexuality is new or bestiality is new or transgenderism is new or sex outside of marriage is new. All these things have always been around. And when the Scripture writes a standard, it's tempting to go, well, I want to be less than that. But you know what happens when we, when we do that? We tend to just lower the standard just low enough so that we've approved. And then you know what we do when we do that? We tend to condemn everybody below us. But if the standard of purity, and I'm only using this because it's an easy example, okay? But if the standard of sexual purity is what Jesus said, which is if you even look with lust, you've committed adultery, then the standard's like here. And we one know, one, we, we, we know, hey, you know what? I fall short, and I need God's grace as much as anybody else. But you know what else we know? That's the standard I want to go for. I want to make a covenant with my eyes like Job did, not to look at anyone else lustfully. You see, here, here's the reality. 
we learn to love God's word as we actually say, okay, God, this is what you have said. These are your standards. We want to live by your standards. And we recognize, Lord, you're good and you're wise. My wife Sarah and I didn't kiss until the day we got engaged. You know what we think? We wish we would have waited till we got married. <laughs> because that six months of engagement was like temptation city, man. It was so hard to keep our hands off each other. It wasn't easy. And, and I say this, Lord, not, not to, to embarrass us or you. I say this because I'm saying this as a sinner saved by grace. That, that it's when we recognize God's wisdom. I can say, man, Lord, it's so good. And I'll tell you, one of the first things Sarah and I both believed when we got married, specifically me, because of my past, was, man, I wish I would have only ever known Sarah. I wish I would never have known anyone else in an intimate way. How much better would it have been? That's God's standard. Now, that's the second thing. We recognize God's standards for right and wrong. So we seek His grace and compassion so we can do the right thing in the wrong environment. And then this, last, piece, last part, we're almost done. We rest in God's covenant love. Look what he says in one. Five, nine. He says, consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. Now again, when he says, consider how I love your precepts, this is not a demand for what's owed him. The psalmist is not saying, look, I've, I've been a good boy. I've kept your precepts, so Lord, you kind of do this work for me. This is not him asking or demanding what's owed. This is really him being confident in what's been promised. The word loving kindness in the Hebrew is a word kesed. It's translated loving kindness, sometimes it's translated, uh, translated mercy, sometimes it's translated love. And it speaks of, listen, I, love, I, I think it's best translated loving kindness. I think it's a great word. I love that word, loving kindness. Because it, it's, it speaks of God's covenantal love towards those that are His. I heard an amazing testimony yesterday. Stopped by the Friends International, uh, their little annex that the Cowles built in their house so that they could do this, this work to international students. And I stopped by there and I, I met someone who just became a Christian, a Chinese man who just became a Christian. And it was, it was awesome hearing his story. I mean, he was beaming ear to ear and as he was talking about his story a little bit, he said he, was, he, was, he had this man who was sharing with him the gospel and as the man was sharing with him the truth about who Jesus was, over a period of time, he says, he remembered where he realized it hit him about God's kindness towards him. That God's kindness was towards him. And he knew that he belonged to Jesus. I thought, wow, what a great way to say it. I mean, he's saying this kind of in broken English, but I think what a great way to say it. God's kindness to us. This is what we're talking about, his covenant love. That God doesn't reluctantly save us. He desires longingly. With a, it pleases Him to save us. That His love towards us is that passionate, perfect, pleased love. And so when, when the psalmist says, 
Lord, consider how I I love your precepts. Revive me according to your loving kindness. He's saying, Lord, I love your precepts because I know I'm in covenant with you. And your covenant, your written promise of love to me is what I love to think on, to hold fast to. And I'm holding fast to that right now. Again, the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 132, he says, look upon me and be merciful to me. Notice, as your custom is towards those who love your name. What's God in the habit of doing? Loving those people he's in covenant with. Has God ever broken that habit? Not once. He he, he delights in showing kindness to those who he's in covenant with. And here's the thing, it's as we read the scripture and we see what that covenant is about and we learn to rest in that covenant that we go, yes, God, this is so good. Yes, I want to rest in this. Again, I don't know how many times, thousands upon thousands of times when I've wondered, am I actually saved? Do I really know God? Am I actually going to go to heaven? Has he actually really forgiven me? How many times that I've been just in my daily reading read something and thought, wow, you are that good, God. You really are that good. You really do have that kind of loving kindness towards me. I really can rest in you. This is what motivates me to teach the book of Hebrews starting next week. It's all about the glories of the new covenant, how Jesus is better than any kind of religious idea we think we could have. Not just that, he says, In verse 160, the entirety of your word is truth and every one of your righteous judgments endure forever. See, he's not just talking here about some kind of temporary help, some sort of feel-good verse that he finds. He recognizes, the psalmist recognizes that this is eternal truth. That's why he says in verse 165, great peace have those who love your law and nothing causes them to stumble. Not their afflictions, not their persecutions, not their difficulties. Why? Because they know what God has promised and they're resting in that. Listen, if you don't love this book, that's probably why you're struggling with loving the God of this book. And if you love a God that's other than the God who's written this book, well, that God can't save you. He can't deliver you from your afflictions. He can't give you any clear standards of right and wrong. And he definitely can't give you any rest. It's only the God who's revealed himself through this book that we can find rest in. 